Good morning. I always find it a little bit funny that Ruth is upheld by many in the Christian world as a model for meekness or submissiveness or passiveness. Because unlike the Disney princesses of my childhood, Ruth is not a helpless maiden locked in a tower waiting to be rescued by her prince. She is not some fragile or weak or childlike martyr of a woman who sits on her hands hoping to make Boaz feel strong and needed. In fact, you have to skip a great deal of Ruth's story to miss just how audacious, daring, and shocking she really is. In the words of Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, well-behaved women seldom make history. See, when I used to lead small groups of young women that were in college, I was inevitably asked about dating and men. Shaped by modern evangelical standards, many of these young women would tell me about how they were waiting for their Boaz and how they just knew that God would bring them their intended spouse if they prayed hard enough and waited long enough. And I used to tell them, only partly joking, that if they were waiting for God to deliver their spouse to their doorstep, then they better quickly develop some feelings for their postal worker or the pizza delivery guy. (laughs) You see, because for these young girls, trusting God meant sitting on their hands and waiting for God to provide the desired outcome. And when many of us tell people to trust God, this is what we mean too. We talk about trusting God as it's some kind of spiritual fatalism. We say it as we throw up our hands or shrug our shoulders and have no idea what else to say. But what does it mean to trust God? Is it that passive of an act? Let's remember where we are in the story of Ruth. We have a young widowed immigrant woman who has come to Israel with Naomi, her widowed and sonless mother-in-law. She and Naomi are living in poverty and off the generosity of a man named Boaz. They are on the constant edge of oblivion. Naomi and Ruth have very little to live off of, and they have even less security in their lives. They are increasingly vulnerable as each day passes. When I worked for the Red Cross years ago, we had a common line. And that was the idea that every person was only one disaster or emergency away from a crisis. For most of us, our stability or self-sufficiency is an illusion and a story that we tell ourselves. A medical diagnosis, a natural disaster, a fire, a job loss, and all of a sudden, we find ourselves trying to hold on to the edge with no net below us. And perhaps this is why the phrase, just trust God, seems to ring so hollow and false to so many people these days. Why, it's the first thing in chaplaincy training in a hospital that they teach you to never say to a person who's sick. Because we tend to say, just trust God, to people who are facing painful life events difficult, and mind-boggling decisions. You don't usually hear a person who just won, say, the mega million, $750 million pot get told, just trust God when they ask what they should do next. 
When we tell people to just trust God in this way, we are often relieving ourselves of the imperative to act on their behalf. We're declaring it's not our problem, it's your problem, and, well, it's God's problem. We end up taking away the agency for others to act on their behalf. When we tell someone, for instance, who is suffering from depression not to worry, just to trust God more, we are actually actively working against that person's well-being by telling them not to seek care. See, this is where the prosperity gospel is so dangerous and insidious. The idea that God is some sort of magical slot machine, that if we just put in enough goodness or enough trust or enough belief that we will be blessed. This is the kind of destructive theology that said if you had just trusted more, then it would have turned out different. If you had just been more faithful or better or good, that it would have gone in your favor. When we talk this way, we relegate God to some kind of malleable secondary force that we can force to do what we'd like with our own behavior. But we know that God's ways are higher than our ways. They're above what we can comprehend. God is not changeable like humans. Ruth declares a different truth about God and humanity and the world. As you may have noticed over the past few weeks, there is actually very little explicit mention of God in the book of Ruth. Rather, we are called instead to see and know a part of God through the lives of each of the characters in the story. In the way that Ruth cares for Naomi, we see God's hesed for them and for us, his loving kindness, his covenant for them and for us. In Boaz's generosity, we see God's generosity. Each of these men and women live lives that reflect their deep faith in God, but also reflect their own agency to act on it. Trusting God in these people is an active word. It's not passive. And it is reflected in how they treat and listen to one another. Trusting God doesn't leave them sitting on their hands waiting for life to happen. Instead, trust in God for these people pushes them to take crazy leaps of faith that they would have never considered before. I want you to imagine with me that you are Ruth. You are sitting at home minding your own business when your mother-in-law comes into the house and tells you that she has a plan a plan to get you a husband so that you can both have security and finally feel less vulnerable. And you're all ears. You want to hear this great plan, and she begins to tell you, she says, I want you to get ready like a bride for a groom. I want you to go and take a bath and prepare your body. Put on all your makeup, do your hair, find your most seductive perfume and your flattering clothes. And once you're all ready, I want you to sneak down to the threshing floor and wait until all the men have finished eating and maybe getting a little bit tipsy. Find out where Boaz sleeps. Watch him. And now, once he's asleep, I want you to sneak up on him. And I want you to uncover his feet. 
Now, see, as Ruth, you know that this is really more of a friendly euphemism for perhaps a little bit more delicate of an area. And then I want you to lie down next to this fairly naked man and let him tell you what he wants you to do. Now, I don't know about you, but if my mother-in-law approached me with a harebrained plan like this, I would have some serious reservations. Because the potential consequences if this goes wrong are vast. If Ruth is seen, she will be thought of as no better than a prostitute because no honorable woman went to the threshing floor. Even if she gets to the threshing floor, the dangers are still manifold. You have a group of men who've been drinking. You have a woman where she's not supposed to be. The possibility of rape or abuse is not out of the question. And who would believe her since she chose to go down there? She could, in fact, do what her mother-in-law said, and Boaz could use her and do nothing for her in return. Now, this is a plan that is fraught with peril. But Ruth, she simply says, I will do as you say. And she goes about getting ready. She prepares like her mother-in-law instructed her. She sneaks in under the cover of darkness, waits till they fall asleep, and she uncovers a man. But here is where Ruth changes the plan just a little bit. Because her mother-in-law told her, just wait for Boaz to tell you what to do. But Ruth, she doesn't. In fact, she tells Boaz what he needs to do. She says, take me as your bride. Redeem Elimelech's land. Spread your cloak over me. Her trust in Naomi's direction, her trust in Boaz to be honorable, her trust in herself to ask for what it is she wants. Trusting God in the book of Ruth is much more active than many of us have been led to believe. And we can't forget poor Boaz, because the guy is happily enjoying his evening, eating and drinking with his friends. He finds a place to lay down, goes to bed, and expects a good night rest. Instead, he's awakened halfway naked in the dark, by a stranger at his legs. I don't know how many of us react calmly in that situation. And he has two choices in that moment. He can raise an alarm and bring shame on Ruth immediately, or he can hear her out. And he shows his trust in God by hearing out this vulnerable woman who has stepped out so far on the ledge, so close to the edge without a net. He understands that her actions reflect her deep love for Naomi, but also her trust in him to be a good man. And he responds to that leap of faith and trust by agreeing to her request, by trusting that a person who would follow faith and love this far would be an excellent spouse and partner. Before the sun rises, he fills her cloak with grain and he sends her on his way, saying, I'll take care of everything. Trusting God does not limit our actions. In fact, it expects us instead to take unbelievable risks of hesed, of loving kindness, 
instead. And when we take these kind of loving kindness risks, we are changed from the inside out. Because trusting God is not about waiting to get what we want or crossing our fingers and hoping things turn out okay. It's about risking everything to show God's love to others and experience that love ourselves. Imagine for a moment how different people would respond to the phrase, just trust God, if they knew that it meant that the people of God would then do everything in their power to care for that particular person. If they knew that that phrase came along with a covenant relationship with the person who uttered it. Then trust in God, it would be seen played out through God's people, not as a platitude, but rather as a charge to those who are walking with the one who is going through the valley. If our trust in God was lived out in these types of hesed actions, it would change the very core of who we are. We would go from being focused on ourselves to focused on others, to go from being passive and waiting for some kind of change to instigating change on behalf of those who are in need. When Ruth comes back in the morning, she has a strange interaction with her mother-in-law. Naomi asks her, who are you, my daughter? Who are you? Perhaps Naomi is recognizing that something fundamental has changed in Ruth over the course of the night. That she is no longer the same person she was before she left, before she took this leap of faith and her walk of trust. In the classic book by Hannah Hernard, Hind's Feet on High Places, we hear a story of a young woman who's deformed named Much Afraid. Now, Much Afraid is called out on a journey by the shepherd to go from a valley in which she lives where there's fear and a family abuses her and hurts her up to the high places where the glorious shepherd lives. He invites her on this journey and he lets her know that She's going to have to leave everything behind. It won't be an easy journey, but he's supplied her with two companions, sorrow and suffering. And together, the three begin their journey, and they are harassed and chased and threatened at every turn. But at the end of the story, Much Afraid finds herself in the high places. And as she stands face to face with the shepherd, she is transformed and she is renamed Grace and Glory. And her two companions, sorrow and suffering, become joy and peace. And as she stands there transformed by her trust in the shepherd, she feels her heart begin to tug, to tug her back down to the valley where she first began, where her abusive and scary family still remains. Because her great act of trust has transformed her, but it has also transformed how she sees others and how she understands her responsibility to them. Trust now meant for her and means for her caring for those who've not yet learned how to. At the end of the story, Naomi tells Ruth, sit tight, my daughter, 
Until you know how it turns out, the man won't rest until it's resolved. Take a rest. Your part is done for the moment. It's time to let Boaz take his trust walk. Because trusting God doesn't mean that we do everything on our own. It means that we can rely on the people around us to pick up the ball when it's their turn. Sometimes I get overwhelmed. I think if I were to try to help every person that I knew needed help in this world, I would never be able to do it. I would have no idea where to even begin. But Naomi reminds us that we don't have to do everything. We just have to do something. I'm fascinated by the story of Philippe Petit, the French tightrope walker who illegally set up a tightrope between the Twin Towers in New York in 1974. He and his team snuck into the Twin Towers during the workday and hid and waited for everyone to go home. Then they began to set up their 450-pound cables between the two towers from the roof. Around 7 a.m. the next morning, Petit stepped out on the wire and began to perform. He was 1,350 feet, a quarter mile above the ground. There was no net. He performed for 45 minutes, making eight passes back and forth along the wire, during which he walked and danced and laid down and knelt to salute the people below. Crowds gathered on the street, and later he said he could hear their murmurs and cheers all the way up where he was. This act was immortalized in film most recently in 2015 in the movie The Walk. And in the opening scene, as we pan up the Twin Towers, we hear the voice of Petit as he says, Why? That is the question that people ask me most. Pourquoi? Why? For what? Why do you walk on the wire? Why do you tempt fate? Why do you risk death? But I don't think of it this way. I never say the word death, l'amour. Yes, okay, I said it once, maybe three times just now, but watch. I will not say it again. Instead, I will use the opposite word, life. For me to walk on the wire, this is life. C'est la vie. In this life, to trust God is to walk on the wire. It is to stand on the edge of the impossible and not let it stop you. It is to live life not looking for a safety net, but to risk greatly for the well-being of others and for ourselves. Jesus' trust in God was seen in his active approach to death or more accurately, his approach to life. He didn't hide in the house with his fingers crossed, hoping that God would magically solve the problem of sin. As he approached the cross, showing the hased of God on our behalf, he lived out a trust to emulate, one that sought the well-being of others, that didn't look or seek out self-preservation, but sought instead to show the Father's love to the world. Trusting God is not a passive thing. 
It is an active moment of faith in which we step out on the wire and we take a risk. Amen.